came to the Lord and walked down the aisle in the evening service back in 1986. Now, I know that was in a different millennium. I understand that. Seems like a long time ago. But not long after I gave my life to Christ, I, it didn't take me long to figure out that there was plenty of reason to go to a Christian bookstore. You know, Christian bookstores were, were popping up all over the place, and I remember walking in there. You could get a Strong's Concordance for like ten ninety nine. Burgundy, right? Remember that? Now you couldn't give one away. I mean, it's, everything's online. But I began, I guess by default, I began to associate my Bible, my faith, with um, commentaries, with resources, with books, with journals, with devotional books. And, and it, I, it's all I ever knew, really. I mean, I thought, and I was sort of taught, sort of caught this idea that Christianity is associated with a lot of study, a lot of reading, a lot of uh, research, different languages. I mean, it, it's layered. You can go so far with it if you want. And I don't guess there's anything wrong with that. But when I open up the Bible and I turn to a certain page and I start to teach or start to do something from that page, I have to remember that I can't look at that culture and that page and those words like the people who lived then looked at them, because there were a lot of people back then, the vast majority of people didn't even read. So they had no need for a Christian bookstore or a concordance or a commentary. In fact, a lot of them didn't even have the Bible, didn't even have the pages. In fact, there are people all over the world today that we're seeking to reach with the gospel of Christ that don't even have a Bible. Maybe they share a book. Maybe they share something, just an epistle. Maybe they pass it around. Maybe they trade. So you, you see, we have this incredible resource available to us, and resources upon resources, but these people back then, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, relied upon oral tradition, passing the stories on generation to generation. You can do that when you don't have televisions or computers. There was a time when people sat down and they talked, and they listened. They retained information for more than three minutes. And that's back in the book of Ruth, way back when, in the time of the judges. When man did what he wanted to do, and Israel had no king. It was a time of upheaval. It was a time of evil. And specifically, it was an interesting time in and around the fields of Bethlehem. So this message I entitled, Fields of Destiny. Way back to the book of Ruth. By telling the story today, I think you can get a feel for what it was like to be a young girl back then in a patriarchal society, being given somebody, being given the story of a woman who turns out to be so so much an integral part of the gospel of Christ, how God valued women, how he provided for women, how he loved women, how he used women for uh, the furthering of the kingdom. And, and we have that example in Ruth. How a young girl today so needs to know how God feels about women, the destiny that he has for women in particular. So Ruth was a, a very good story to that end that was told from father to child. And it, it seems as though 
God has a destiny for all of us. It seems as though that destiny is often tied to a family line or to a property line, to a land that is owned by a certain person in a certain place. And God has the foreknowledge of knowing what he's going to do in the future. He must be giddy sometimes. He must be giddy. I started to listen to Christmas songs here recently, and I don't know what it is. Every year, there's something powerful about Christmas music. It never dies down. It seems to always take me back to my childhood and my grandmother and my grandfather, my parents, and coming down the steps to open gifts on Christmas morning, my dad having that, uh, that movie camera. It didn't matter what he did with it when he played it back. It always melted. The film always melted. Didn't really matter. But gosh, that meant so much to me as a boy. And I'm sure as I went through that stage of understanding how important it was, the people of Bethlehem started to realize, I think, over time, that there was a destiny to them, that they were living in a specific place in a specific time. But before them, there was a baton, and after them, there was a baton, and eventually there was Christ. So we talk about the birth of Christ often, but do we ever talk about what led up to it? Well, it starts really in Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Hephaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one from, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, prophesying the coming of Christ. So I'm going to share some things with you about the book of Ruth and what happens in and around the shepherd fields outside of Bethlehem. Many of you have been on those fields with me. We've stood in those fields just outside Bethlehem overlooking the Jordan Mountains of Moab and trying to ascertain what happened where, where were the shepherds, where was the manger. It's all right there, man. It's just right there. Bethlehem at present is under Palestinian control. It's behind a big concrete fence with barbed wire, and you've got to go through a lot of... Uh, You've got to do a lot of things to get in there, get out. And the Christians that are living in Bethlehem today are in really, really, really bad shape. They're bad enough with tourism. They're really bad without it. Talk about that more in a minute. The shepherd fields. Bethlehem is like, um, I don't even know what they call them anymore. You st- he goes, those things in the store, you would stare at the image, and you stared at it the right way long enough, you'd see a dinosaur or something in 3D. What do you call those things? Exactly. <laughs> My wife had the same answer this morning. Whatever they were, if you looked at it, you'd go, I don't even understand. What is this thing? What, 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 what? And then all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, there's a dinosaur out to get me. That's what Bethlehem is. If you look at it long enough, you begin to see things in the Scripture that you've never, ever seen before. So we're in an agrarian society. People aren't reading as much as they read today. We begin with the book of Ruth. Now Ruth is from Moab, the land of idols, false religion. She's a foreigner. She has no business really in Israel. She certainly has no business being the bloodline of Christ. Or does she? Or does she? 
Naomi is her mother-in-law. Naomi means pleasant. Elimelech is her father-in-law. And he dies early on in the story. But not before Orpah and Ruth marry the sons of Naomi and Elimelech. Their names are Malon and Kilian. Nice names. Worse, if you really know what they mean. They mean sickness and pining. <laughs> yeah. This is my son's sickness, and I'd like you to meet pining. They die after 10 years of marriage, and Ruth and Orpah are now left as widows. Elimelech has since died. Now Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are three widows living in Bethlehem. Not good. No retirement, no Social Security, nothing. And a famine comes, and it gets worse. So they have to leave their hometown of Bethlehem and sojourn to Moab, among Ruth's people, among the idol worshipers. And that's where they go. When the famine's over, they come back. And they get to not far from Bethlehem, and Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, listen, and they're both from Moab, Hey, listen, I don't have much to offer. I'm not going to have any children. I, 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 don't even know I, have, I don't even know if I have a home. I don't know what I have. I'm returning back to this place. I'm as much a stranger as you are. I have nothing to offer you. I have no sons to offer you. There's nothing here for you. Go back to your people. And Orpah, which means gazelle, gallops off. And Ruth, which means friend, friend of God, defines friendship. No, 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 no. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She ain't going anywhere. So Ruth follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. And Naomi now says, I'm in a bad mood. And I'm going to be in a bad mood for a while. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Well, it's not looking good. Notice she doesn't say I'm bitter until right after she gets the pledge from Ruth that she'll never leave her. Now, so now that you said you'll never leave me, I've got to tell you something. I'm pretty bitter. Um, pretty nasty, pretty ornery. So they go back to Bethlehem, and Ruth begins to work in the fields. Well, she's an outsider to begin with, and she's a woman. She's got two marks against her. It's dangerous. She catches the eye. Oh, yes. She catches the eye of Boaz, an ancestor of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And Boaz sees her and says, who is that girl there? And she's allowed to glean in the fields. She's allowed more. To, gleaning means you get what falls off the wagon and you get what's in the corner of the field that can't be cut at a 90-degree angle. So you get the corners of the field and whatever falls off the wagon is for the women, the poor people. He says, I don't want any touching her. I don't want anybody hurting her. In fact, I want you to give her more than you give other people, show favor to her. And she ends up with enough to bring back to Naomi who still is bitter. Well, this goes on, and finally Naomi catches on that, hey, this Elimelech guy, he could be the answer to our problems. He's a descendant of my ex-husband, my dead husband. He says he could redeem our household. He could be our kinsman redeemer. He could pay off our debt. He could restore promise to our family again. He could be the one who could take care of us. And Ruth proposes to him on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Okay, so he's had a few beers. But she waits for him to eat. She waits for him to drink. She proposes to him. 
He accepts the proposal. She leaves early, early in the morning, and they get married. After, Boaz goes to the city gate and makes arrangements to be her kinsman redeemer. That means I will take on your debt. I will take you on as my wife. I will care for you. I will love you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. A kinsman, meaning it's part of the family, and a redeemer means I'll redeem all of your debt. Well, there's a guy closer in line to this absolute responsibility, but he can't do it. So Boaz becomes the head of the household again, and they have a child. Boaz and Ruth have a child named Obed. Obed later in Bethlehem has a child named Jesse. Jesse later has a child and a child and a child and a child. And finally, his last son picked to be king of Israel is David, who was out in the shepherd fields when they were making decisions as to who would be the next king of Israel. Samuel found him. So that's the history of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem still has the promise of the Savior, the Messiah, to come. Now, just a young girl working, playing, minding her own business, coming up in the fields of Bethlehem, hears this story and says, oh my goodness, there is a God. He knows me, knows where I am, knows what I need, and will take care of me. I only wish there were more young women today in our culture who understood that there is for them in Christ a destiny. Whether they're divorced, widowed, never married, looking for love, looking for promise, looking for security, looking to be understood, looking for a friend, looking for fellowship. There is a God who looks at and looks for the women of the world to minister to them at their point of need and will provide for them in advance of them even knowing they have the need. And those those girls back in Bethlehem in those days would look up to Ruth as a heroine, a heroine of of, of the faith, of somebody who came from a foreign land that God brought to faith in the one true God. Now, you're in the story. We're all in the story somewhere, certainly for women, and certainly if you're sick, certainly if you're pining, you're longing for something more, you're not quite yet satisfied. Or perhaps, my friend, you're bitter. If things haven't actually gone your way and your destiny may just well be that, uh, you know, I'm just going to have to endure. But as I look around the room, here's what I see from my perspective, knowing what I know behind the scenes of a lot of your lives, behind the face, behind the expression, behind the pain, behind the joy, behind the laughter, there has been a famine Many of you have been through a famine, a spiritual famine, a financial famine, a relational famine, a health famine, some kind of famine. Some of you, not all of you, not very many, some of you have left your destiny and been off elsewhere in the land of idols only to return. It doesn't matter the destiny that God has for specific people in a specific land, maybe even your land, maybe even your property, maybe even your home, maybe even your life. 
remains. We can come, we can go, we can go up, we can go down, we can leave, we can forsake it. We feel like we're forsaken by him. It doesn't matter. The destiny remains because in that land at that time, the Savior is still going to come. Nothing will thwart the arrival of the Savior, but in leading up to it, you're going to be a part of the story of the building of the kingdom of God. You're in this church. This church has a destiny to it. I know people don't think this way anymore. They don't even talk this way anymore. People church hop so often they never see the bigger picture. There were those who came on this land years ago when there was nothing here and built this sanctuary in advance for you to enjoy today. We never talk about them that often. We don't, we don't really appreciate it that much. Some of them have already gone on to be with the Lord, but they were the foundation stone here. They did something here, and we're now enjoying that. This church has no debt, not a single penny. Why? Because people back then planned for, prayed for, built for, you and I to enjoy 100% of our monies going towards the building of the kingdom, not just to a bank. So there's a destiny involved in a church. People, nowadays this is lost, this is just gone. What we're doing now is paving a way for people of the future. This is so, it's gone on a national level. It's not even existent anymore. But you're a part of something right now on this field where people glean on this field who are impoverished, who are hurting, who need their teeth replaced, who need surgery, whose house just burned down. People come to us for help. And you know what? We can and do provide for them as the Lord leads. Why? Because we can. Because we have a destiny here to be a city set upon a hill. And we are upon a hill. And we're called to act like it. People come to us for help with their illnesses, their finances, with their relationships, with their marriages, with their children. They desperately call this church for prayer. Because you're known, we're known as a praying church, a believing church where people's lives can change. I've buried no shortage of people over the last 12, 13 years who are part of that destiny. There's a lot of them who cared enough to do something here on our behalf. And Bethlehem teaches us that. Are we setting ourselves up for the continuation of the kingdom of God beyond ourselves, and not just here? Do we conduct ourselves in a manner that a younger generation would find our faith attractive or repulsive? Because nowadays, it's gonna be one or the other. There's no middle ground. People of a younger age will find your faith attractive or repulsive. Usually, more often than not, one or the other. They will determine the attractiveness or the lack of attractiveness of our faith, but what we say, how we say it, who we talk about, and a number of other things that we cannot afford to be clueless about because we are a people of destiny. Community Bible Church has a destiny. 
It has a future pastor out there, and the one after that, and the one after that. It has future elders out there, and the ones after that, and the ones after that. And they count on us to position ourselves to pass a baton in the correct and appropriate and fruitful way. This kid that stood here, uh, Nick, he stood here the other day from Teen Challenge, and we laid hands on him and prayed. After the service, they said, do you know who that is? I said, explain it to me. What do you mean? He says, two years ago, he gave his life to Christ here at Community Bible Church. He's since graduated. Now he's leading part of the ministry and helping people in recovery. That's a church with destiny. That's why we do what we do. We don't have a momentary mindset. We have a long-term mindset. So think about that when you pray. Think about that when you give. Bethlehem is a field of destiny. Do now what you cannot do later for your children. And manage your bitterness along the way. Let people glean in your field. Naomi was bitter because she didn't know there was anyone among her who could take care of her problems. She says, I need a kinsman. I need someone in my family line. I don't know who, who will step up, take care of my husband's household. I need one from among us, one that looks like us, one that moves like us, one that talks like us, one that lives among us, one that knows our needs, one who gets Bethlehem. I need someone to step up from my husband's family line and his clan, the clan of Elimelech. I need that person to step forward and be a man. I need a man. I need a man to take care of this household. I can't do it on my own. I'm just not positioned to do it. And intensifying that situation, she has now a Moabitess girl that she's now responsible for. I need someone who's a kinsman and a redeemer. Here comes Boaz. There are pillars, there are pillars in the temple named after Boaz. He was a pillar. You know, I look around, I see men in this church, I, I'm in small groups with men, I pray with men, I counsel with men, I, I see pillars too. I see guys who are immovable, grounded, deep within the ground, like a post, they're not going anywhere, they're holding up the weight, they're taking weight off their wives that their wives don't even know about. They're taking the brunt of anxiety and prayer, and they're, they're like Boaz. They can hold up under the weight. I love that about these men in this church. They never say anything about it, but they just do it. That's Boaz, and that's some of the men here. They handle adversity. They get through it. They don't run from it. They're affixed like Jesus, the chief cornerstone. They're a pillar. Boaz. And Boaz is no stranger to the threshing floor. Men who end up as pillars are men who understand the threshing floor. Threshing floors where the grain is crushed under the weight, circumstances, forces. It's broken. The husk is crushed. It's broken. It's thrown up in the wind. And the wheat and the chaff 
barley separated. I know there are those of you who have been through tough times, really, tough times by anyone's measurement. May not be recently, but tough times. And the wind of the Spirit's blown through that barn of yours and it separated the wheat from the chaff, and you've come out the other side better than you were when you started. I know some people have been cheated. I've been cheated. Things have been stolen from people. Things have been stolen from me. People have taken advantage of you. They've taken advantage of me. I get it. But on the other side, a man who's a pillar, who understands the threshing floor, will trust the wind of the Spirit to separate him from that which he needs to be separated from, and he knows what brokenness means. The necessity of brokenness. Jesus was crushed. His body was broken. It's It's a type of understanding that sometimes a person's life, a man's life, a woman's life are gonna go through seasons of crushing and come out okay on the other side. Boaz knew that. He's a man of character, man of renown, man of reputation, and he redeemed Naomi's household. He paid every single debt she ever owed, got her out of hock, got her stuff out of the pawn shop, satisfied the bank, and carried on with a fruitful life. He loved to his wife, Ruth, who gave birth to the grandfather of King David, a no-count gleaner from Moab, no reputation. His greatest moment in his life, he said, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Decision-making. No wonder they call their friend. Well, David's picked when he's out in those fields, just like Ruth was picked when she was out in the fields. He became the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Destiny. And fast forward a 1,000 years. Men, magi, see a star, follow the star, come to the fields of Bethlehem, see a child born in a manger, just like Micah said would happen. I put gold in front of that child. I put frankincense in front of that child. And they put myrrh in front of that child. Myrrh means bitter. It took some time, but Naomi's bitterness was given to Christ. You may have been ruminating in bitterness in some way, shape, or form for I don't know how long, but, you know, it could be time. Laid it at the feet of Jesus. Frankincense means to be made clean and white, clean, pure. That it's the original word. Isn't that what we're all pining for? Isn't that what we're all sick over? Don't we want to be pleasant? Don't we want to have a clear conscience? God saw the people's needs. He saw Ruth, an alien, a foreigner, an outsider, a no-count, a woman of all things. Why did Christ come to a manger in Bethlehem? Because you and I needed a kinsman redeemer, one that looked like us, 
walked like us, talked like us, lived among us, came to live as part of our heritage, came in the form as a man, as our representative, to die on a cross for our sin as our kinsman, and in so doing, redeem us in our household from the debt we could not pay, not now, not ever, a sin debt, a guilt debt, a debt that you and I pine over every day, whether we are aware of it or not. We have a sense of our own sinfulness. We have a sense of our own innocence. We have a sense of what Christ has done in and through us. We have a sense of our own cleanliness. You know this personally. You know your thoughts. You know your actions. You know your sins. You know your sins of omission. You know your need of the blood of Christ. You know your need as a kinsman to represent you on a daily basis and to redeem you of your sin. And when you fully take account of that and that act and that finished work of Christ took place in a different field at a different time, 33 years later, you realize that God was meeting your need before you ever knew it. And he demonstrated his love for you while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. I get sick over my own sin and I pine for more of God. I long for more of his intervention in my life. I find myself bitter against no one but myself. Why do I do what I do? Why do I not do what I, what I know I should do? Why do I do what I shouldn't do? Romans 7, it's, it's Paul all over again, pining, longing, expecting something to happen in his life that's already happened, we just need to accept it. A kinsman, human form, represented you and redeemed you and paid your debt you couldn't pay. And, I mean, it's, it's great enough that God does all of this, but does he have to foreshadow it all? Does he have to first demonstrate it all? Does he have to work it out in every person's life? If I was a young girl growing up in Bethlehem during this time and I sat down after supper around the fire in the living room and my father told me the story of Ruth, I'd have to say, I'd have to conclude, I, I pretty much matter. I matter to God. And though I may feel like I'm an outsider, his love is inclusive. And though I am an outsider, he brings me to the center of all things happening that actually matter. And though I feel like I'm poor because I am poor, and though I glean leftovers off a wagon, and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, if even that, I have to realize that I'm the great-grandmother of the king of all Israel. You're a single woman today, listen. It's at the threshing floor that Ruth proposed to Boaz and later became his wife. Don't let the threshing floor keep you from your destiny. Go through the threshing floor and embrace your destiny. Don't find trouble and run the other way and doubt God. Sit in the midst of your trouble and know that he's at work around you. Be it a famine, be it financial poverty, 
be it social poverty, be it sickness or pining or any other thing, bitterness or unforgiveness, whatever the case may be, God will work it out. He's not trying to find and give you a way out. Listen to me. He is the way. He's not trying. Don't pray that he would give you answers first. He is the answer. Don't ask him to be with you. He's already present. You have a destiny on your life. And because you have a destiny, you have an orchestrator and a conductor over your life. Now you say, some of you may sit here and say, I'm not sure I know what that means for me. Usually, it becomes very clear in the near future when you find out something happens, some event, some something that is seemingly changing the trajectory of your life. Go back and listen. God was giving you the grace to understand how to handle the situation before the situation ever came up. There's a destiny over your life. There's a destiny over Israel, and there's a destiny over Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 9 through 12, after they have heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Those were Persians. Persians. Iranians. Modern-day Iranians. Afghanis. That's who they were. And you know what? There was a destiny on that plot of land and those fields and those caves outside of Bethlehem. But the God that we worship, he has, a, he has a destiny for everyone. The fastest growing church in the world is what? The Persian church, Iran, right now. And their destiny, I've talked to these people. I've taught these people. I've preached to these people. And you know what happens when you tell them that those magi were Persians? They sit up a little straighter. They go, are you kidding me? No, no, no. You people started this whole thing, and there's a destiny on you as well. Return back to their people. And God is carrying out that destiny even today. Your life may have gotten redefined recently. Chapter of your life and the page may have turned drastically. You, it may be for good. You might be in, embarking on a, on a noble pursuit. You might be without someone or something you've had for a long time and not know how to go forward. You may be in plenty. You may be in lack. You may be, feel like you're on the outside. You might feel like you're on the inside. You might feel fully alive or you just feel like you're just dead and shriveled up. It doesn't matter. The destiny and the irrevocable calling of God upon your life will take you through these things and will help you. And if that's not a reason to celebrate Christmas, I don't know what is. Because it's a whole lot more, as you know, than outlet malls, sales, and online purchases. Let's pray.
destiny doesn't come up very much anymore, Lord. Life seems so chopped up and ever-changing quickly. We move about and friendships come and go. People go to churches all over the land. The loyalty and the friendship of Ruth seems to be headed towards extinction. But I say, bring us Ruths. Bring us outsiders. Continue to bring us the infirmed, the confused, those in chaos. Is there a destiny for them as well? Lead us to where you would have us to go and help us to go, Lord, with you and through you and in you through whatever difficulty lies ahead and whatever promise or potential lies ahead. Take us through it with you, in you, through you. I pray that you would well up within us as rivers of living water. No matter how we see ourselves, we would know that we matter. That you gift us, protect us, insulate us. We thank you for that. That you are mindful of us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's meditate on that as we worship, and we'll close our service.